the generation prior was similar to the experience of the generation that followed. Uh, there was change, obviously, both in technology and in culture, but the change was not so much that you couldn't ex understand the experience of the other. But because of the rapid cultural change and the rapid technological change, there's less shared experience. And this makes the older generation difficult to instruct the younger generation, and it causes a radical individualism that's in our culture that really makes uh, this younger generation open to a soft totalitarianism that is talked about in these books. The present generation, called iGen or Generation X, is significantly different from their millennial parents, especially in terms of their personal confidence. The millennials grew up with high self-esteem and believed they could do anything, even if they couldn't do it. Uh, the millennials had, they scored highest on self-esteem regarding math and lowest on actually doing math. So it, it wasn't exactly the same. This younger generation that comes out of the late 1990s to about 2007 or 8, that generation is struggling with confidence and with several other things that the books are talking about. So um, the book Coddling of the American Mind talks about three great untruths. And remember, we're talking about live not by lies. And so uh, these truths, these so-called truths, are uh, permeating this generation. The first one is a fragility, this focus on safety above everything else. And that's one of the reasons why this generation is not drinking and taking drugs as much. They're not driving. They're not even getting their driver's license. They're much more uh, likely to be concerned about their safety. It's one of the reasons they don't get involved in relationships. And so they really see safety as uh, the main thing that they should be doing. And they got that, of course, from their overprotective parents. The second one is emotional reasoning. Uh, this is focusing on your emotions as the explanation and the understanding of your experience that cannot be questioned because if you question them, you then bring about an unsafe situation. The third thing is a good-evil dichotomy where people are either all good or all bad, and there's no sense of a mix in that framework. Talk more about that one uh, next week. So last time, I think this was before Jeff's series began, um, I talked about the fragility caused by an overconcern of safety. Uh, the Gen uh, iGen children grew up overprotected. They have difficulty assessing risk and critically thinking. One of the things that I struggle with at Cal Baptist is the inability of students to think critically. And I mean two basic things of critical thinking. To be able to compare and contrast so that you understand the characteristics and can identify what something is by its characteristics. And secondly, to think through the implications of something. If you can't think through the implications, so for example, if you only have three cookies left in the bag and you eat those cookies now, there won't be any cookies later. They can't seem to follow that kind of 
of logical progression. So they have difficulty with compare and contrast, and they have difficulty with implications. Uh, I have one course where that's all I teach, worldview and epistemology. It's about comparing and contrasting, and, and it's about um, uh, implicational thinking. And they just find it almost impossible. I have to really work with them to finally get them to make that critical thinking step. So this is one of the things that's happened where they've been taught, here's the answer. Psychology and Freud go together. They don't have to know what psychology is. They don't have to know who Freud is. All they have to know is that they both go together on an exam. And if they don't know which one to do, then they pick C. And that's, that's basically what they do. All right. Now, I'm overstating it, but you get the idea. So today what I want to do is talk about the problem of emotional thinking uh, in this younger generation and the biblical approach to avoiding it. So we begin with what is emotional thinking. In a nutshell, emotional thinking is allowing your emotions to overly influence your cognitive processes so that you think in subjective and very exaggerated ways, often making decisions that are inappropriate because of that, over overthinking it or overfeeling it really, or you become paralyzed, can't make a decision. If I make this decision, I don't get the... If I make this, and I'm, they just become paralyzed in trying to make a decision. Um, and so, uh, we all have emotions. We all experience an array of feelings. And those feelings are part of our experience, and they're part of our memories, and they're part of our thinking processes in terms of how we operate. But the, the problem here is that we need to understand exactly what emotions are. So, I call emotions an intersection. It's an intersection of two things that are going on in you simultaneously. The first one is your body state. There is, we all feel our body. We all have a sense that we're either tired or we're full of energy. We have a sense of being sleepy or we have a sense of, of, of just feeling off. Though there are physiological body states that are always going on in our systems. The other part of us is our spirit or our mind. And our mind is thinking all the time. And we're analyzing things and we're looking at things and we're remembering things. Those two things are happening. Now, what emotions are is an intersection between those two processes. And so, people who study emotions aren't quite sure what the cause is. In other words, they don't understand if it's psychosomatic, you have a thought, and the thought then alters your biofeedback so that you feel different. You can actually think yourself into a panic. Many of you have done that. You know what that's like. On the other hand, it could start with the body. And if I'm really feeling tired and I don't remember why I'm tired, I might think I'm feeling depressed. In other words, we are interpreting these, these intersections. And I call them intersections because it's this psychosomatic relationship that's going on. Now, I believe our emotions can operate in either direction. And one of the problems that makes this difficult is that our the symptoms, the physiological symptoms of our emotions can be the same symptoms for different emotions. 
So if you are afraid and if you are anxious and if you are worried, you can have sweaty palms and butterflies in your stomach. And that's also what happens when you're romantically in love. That's one of the reasons why historically people went to amusement parks because the amusement parks, the roller coasters and stuff, gave you the butterflies in your in your stomach and the sweaty palms, and then if you interpreted it as coming from this person, you then had a great day, right? So that's part of the process. So here's the struggle. The struggle is that our emotions, because of this problem, can be uh, misunderstood or they can be manipulated. I want to give you an example, one of my favorite social psychology um, uh, studies was they took a group of men and they had them in a room just talking and they brought a woman in who was not overly attractive or underly attractive. I don't know how they calculated that, but that's what they said. And they brought her in and she just walked around the room while the men were talking and then she left. And then they asked, they interviewed the guys and said, did you notice a woman walking in? And they said, yeah. What did you think of her? Well, she was okay. I mean, they, they didn't much think that much about her. A few months later, they took those same guys and put them on one of those suspended bridges. You know, those ones that are up over the water and you're, you're not sure if they're going to stay in that. They put all the guys up there. They had the same woman walk across the bridge while the guys are there. Afterwards, they interviewed them and many of them felt strong attraction to the woman. Right? They were not interpreting their fear of being suspended they were interpreting the presence of the woman. We pick and choose the cues that we're doing, or we respond to those cues, and we may respond to those differently. And that means that we can easily misunderstand our emotions, or it's possible for people to manipulate us with the emotions. Now, we live in a culture that does that. Every advertisement manipulates your emotion. Often sermons and altar calls are based on emotional appeals and not on truth. A lot of things that we sell, a lot of things that we uh, talk to people about, we're trying to persuade them and we have to use an emotional framework. So we show little sad puppies shivering in the cold. Or we show, show children who are sick. And that motivates people to do something. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because we're often driven by our emotions. Now, the coddling book addresses this misunderstanding and manipulation by introducing cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Okay? They think it's a solution for the disruption of critical or accurate thinking, and I think that's useful for secular people, but I, I think it can also be helpful for believers who claim to be believers but are predominantly assimilated. But I don't want to get into that. The authors identify several distinctive distortions of thinking uh, that block people from critically thinking. I think that's valuable uh, for cognitive behavioral therapy, but I don't think it's a cure-all. And I, uh, there are other ways of explaining some of these things. So I'm not going to talk about that now. If you want to bring it up in Q&A, we can talk about it. Um, so I want to talk about a biblical approach to these things. Now the most common emotions are fear, sadness, and anger. 
These are the ones most often addressed in Scripture as well. And in most cases, we're warned against them. Over and over and over and over, God says, fear not, I am with you. Be careful of your anger. Be slow to anger. The anger of man does not work the, the work of God. The scriptures are clear about these sadness becoming overwhelming, anger overwhelming us, or fear overwhelming us, among other aspects of emotion. So, I believe that spiritual formation is dependent on us believing the truth and behaving according to the truth. Now, you could say that's cognitive behavioral, but I see it different than the cog B stuff that's going on. So I want to keep it in the biblical framework. How do we think? Do we think in accordance with the truth? And do we behave in accordance with the truth? In other words, do we believe what God has said about life? And do we do what God says to do in this life, in the circumstances? Are we hearers and doers of the word? Uh, Believing is thinking on and trusting in what God says about life. Behaving, being a doer of the word. Uh, Neither of these is emotional. And this is the major difference between the behavioral sciences and theology. The behavioral sciences define behavior as thought, emotion, and overt action. And they focus primarily on emotion. How do you feel? How do you feel about that? What, what are your feelings regarding that? The Bible says that our thought and intent and our words and deeds are behavior. The Bible simply does not consider emotion to be a vital part of our um, behavior. In fact, it warns us about uh, that pulling us away from the truth. So I'm going to look at some verses. Some of these you've seen before, but I just want to get your focus on this. So in Psalm verse four, Psalm four verse four, uh, the psalmist writes uh, these words. David writes these words: "Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Consider this, Selah." Now. Interesting here, the psalmist is saying, and it's translated tremble in the NASB. The word, the Hebrew word has a number of, uh, has a range of meaning that involves a physical reaction, an agitation, an anger, a uh, excitement, a, uh, uh, a um, increase in, in energy. It's, it's this physiological thing that happens to us when the emotions kick. And it says, there they are, but don't sin. In other words, don't follow those in a direction that God has told you not to do. It's really important. The advice here is we're not to act on that particularly in a manner that would be sin. Instead, we are to meditate in our heart, on our bed, and we are to become still. In other words, we're supposed to take our emotions captive 
And you're not going to just talk yourself out of it. You're going to have to think about this. You're going to have to meditate on truth. You're going to have to take time out. Right? Uh, you need a emotional, I'm, I'm getting worked up here. I need to calm this down. Now, Paul is going to draw on this in Ephesians chapter 4. So I'd like you to turn there. He actually quotes this verse. He slightly adjusts it. Um, not, not much, but just a little bit. And so it's translated out of the Greek instead of the Hebrew. A little different in, in this framework. In Ephesians 4, verse 26, Paul says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. And then he adds to that, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So again, the emotional reaction takes place. Don't let that move you and motivate you to do something, to say something, or to act in a way that is a violation of Scripture. I'm adding the word thing because of the great series that Jeff just did, the Taming of the tongue is part of this process. We can say things because we didn't think. We felt it. And we feel sometimes our emotions are strong enough that we think they're conviction. They're not conviction. They're agitation. And you need to see it as agitation. If you see it as righteous indignation, you're going to be an idiot. Okay? And you don't want to do that. And everybody around you will know you're an idiot. You won't. When I do this, I never think I'm an idiot. Till later. Right? And I do this. This is my biggest problem on the 91 freeway. Right? Uh, because I'm provoked. I'm easily provoked. Right? So, so Paul says, I don't want you fuming and stewing with this. I don't want you to let the sun go down on your anger. In other words... Don't hang on to these emotional uh, bursts. You need to meditate. You need to be calm. You need to do that within the day. You need to, to not let the sun go down. Don't stew all night in this thing. You need to take control of it very quickly. If you don't, what happens is you'll build up. There's two emotions that I think we build up. One appears to be anger. Because later, if you don't uh, address the anger, you don't address the anger, you don't address the anger, somebody does a little thing and, man, you explode. You vomit that anger out. Same thing with sadness. You can break into crying. They're not connected to the actual thing that did it. They're now kind of carrying their own framework. And so we have to be careful of that. There are other emotions that just don't work that way. I wish you could stuff laughter and happiness. Wouldn't that be great? Just walking down the street, somebody does something. <laughs> That doesn't happen. You don't do that. But we can explode in anger and we can explode in sadness. Those things uh, do happen to us. So if we generalize this application to other emotions, it appears that we're not to let emotions control our thoughts or our behaviors, that is, words and actions. Instead, we are to think and behave according to the truth. And when the emotions arise and interfere with our thoughts and our behavior, we're to stop Get control of ourselves by meditation on God's word. 
Think on these things as the scripture says. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your heart and mind. And we are to not let it continue long in our experience. That holding on to it, holding on to it, holding on to it is not good for us. Now I want to give you another passage and I'm trying to watch my time here. In the book of Galatians chapter 5. And Paul does this in Romans. I just picked the Galatians passage because uh, I had used the Romans one, I think, last time. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, behave according to the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these two are in opposition to one another, so that you cannot do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit you will not be condemned by the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envies, drunkenness, carousing, and that kind of stuff. Right? Now what is Paul doing? Paul says, I want you to know that these behaviors and these feelings lock in together. The feelings happen, the behavior happens. The behavior happens, it feeds the emotions. Those things will work, and that's part of the flesh, and that's part of our sinful nature. We all have that. We all have that in us. We're going to talk more about this next time when we talk about the what Israel uh, Judaism calls the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov, that urge towards evil and the urge towards good, human nature. Uh, but it's important to understand this. Uh, Paul is listing emotions in this works of the flesh. Now, he's not just talking about emotions. In the biblical context, we have passions, and we have lusts, and we have emotions, and we have all of these things, and they are more often than not identified with the flesh, with that nature of us that is about us us, and not about others. That's the thing that we have to crucify in order to be other-oriented in that sense. And so, uh, if our mind is set on the things of God, and we follow after the Spirit, then what's going to happen, Paul says here, is that we'll end up with the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. If you look at those things, those aren't really emotions. Those are part of that peace, that sense of God's presence, that understanding of love as doing for another uh, at your expense. It really pulls you out of yourself and into the body of the Lord and into the community of faith. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That would be what we're talking about with some of these emotions. Now, children need to be taught this process of dealing with their emotions. One thing you should never do is have a child deny their emotions. Emotions exist and we have them. And you can say, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. As angry as you can be, right? 
And you could be, I'm not sad, I'm not sad. <gasps> right? The reality is there is a problem when we don't acknowledge that we are in an emotional state. It's okay for kids to be in an emotional state. And sometimes they will talk and act inappropriate in that. You have to talk about the words and the deeds, not the emotion. You want to stop the words and the deeds, not the emotion. The emotion needs to be dealt with by sitting down, calming down, meditating on the word of God, and and calming ourselves that way. If we teach children to deny their emotions, the emotions will rise up and take greater control of them. Uh, But they live in a culture and in a world and in a school system that says your emotions are the truest, most significant part of who you are. And that's a lie. It is the most uncontrollable part of who you are. And if you don't learn to be able to dissipate those emotions, you are going to end up making decisions that are damaging and you're going to engage in behaviors that are damaging. It's going to affect your thinking and it's going to affect your behavior. We don't want them living by lies and emotions. We want them to live by truth. Now here's the problem. And I said this at the beginning of this series. You can't teach this to your children if you can't do it yourself. Right? We have to start with ourselves. We have to model this. A kid who sees their parent struggling with anger and working to calm it down is immensely better than a kid who doesn't think their parent ever gets angry. They need to know what our struggle of faith is. We need to do that. We don't need to do it grossly, but we need to do it in a way that they, that they understand that. Has to be modeled and taught so that children will learn and catch it. We're too often trapped and ensnared by our emotions. I think our emotions were intended by God. I think God created our emotions. I think that what God intended our emotions to be was a uh, intensity to help us realize the benefit or the damage that's going on. In other words, just being flatlined is kind of robotic. There is an importance in in having an up mood and a down mood and understanding that, but if we let that then control us, we get looped into into that framework. So we have to teach our children this lesson. We have to practice it ourselves. We're told in the scriptures... To mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we're not to shun emotions. But I'll tell you, if somebody is really deep in sadness and mourning, somebody is really losing control in their joy so that they're they're trying to hold on to the joy and they're doing that by entertaining themselves, if we come alongside and do it with them, you will kind of help mitigate that and help them framework when somebody is in deep mourning, if you are mourning with them, they will tend to come up to your level. You won't be able to drag them down unless you are easily manipulated, right? And so part of this is our reinforcement and our care of each other. When they're moderated and controlled by the truth, I think our emotions operate 
as God intended. So, emotions have become the form of the focus of psychology and therapy and education and, alas, religion right now in some synagogues and tomorrow in churches. There will be services that are specifically geared with the music and with the exciting preaching and with everything to manipulate you into a decision that you will sleep off that night and be right back where you are the next day. Because it's not based on truth, it's based on the moment. Emotions are fleeting in that sense, and that's dangerous for us. We want to be careful about making decisions through emotions. Our culture wants people to feel their way through life. That's a road to destruction and death. God has given us a better way. That way is not without emotion, but it's founded on truth as revealed in God's word. People believe lies when they are controlled by their emotions. We are not to live by lies, but by the truth. What we're going to look at next time is, as we're raising these adults, we want to not divide people into good and evil based on one or two things they do. Uh, There is a tendency in this culture right now to, if they find one thing bad about you, you are written off. And if they find one thing they like about somebody they like, then that overcomes any negative that's there. That is unhealthy, and it will damage the development of relationships. And I'll talk about that next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you created us. Recording stopped.